Okay, if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Just a little bit of recap before we get into our passage this morning. Last week, Pastor Keith started us with the first nine verses, and what we talked about was our identity being in Christ. Paul begins his letter by reminding his readers who they are in Jesus. And Pastor Keith told us that it is important for us to be constantly reminded of who we are in Christ Jesus because who we believe we are will determine how we live. And our identity is one of the major battles of the Christian life because the world is constantly trying to tell us who we are. Not only are we, I would say, not only are we idol factories, right, where we have to be worshiping something, we have to be making some sort of idol in our life to worship, to fill that void, but I also would say that we are identity crisis factories. We are constantly trying to fill this void of what is our identity, and some people find that in work, some people find that in um, sex, some people find that in drugs, some people find that in alcohol, some people find that in family, some people find that in being a good husband or a good wife or a good daughter or a good son or a good father or mother, all these ways, not even all of them bad necessarily, can be bad if you are trying to find your identity ultimately in these things. And so we have to understand the three truths that Pastor Keith spoke about last week about who we are in Christ. And the first is that we are saved by the grace of God. We are sanctified and being sanctified by the grace of God. And then ultimately we look forward to the day that we will be glorified by the grace of God. And so Paul reminds his readers before anything else that your identity is and must be in Christ. And Paul reminds them who they are in Christ and then moves into the issues that were reported to him, continuing in this letter. See, the problem is that they are not living in their identity in Christ because of cultural syncretism. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, and it's going to be kind of a, a, a big word, but I think we got it. Cultural syncretism. What it means is the church, the culture of the church, that should have its identity in Christ and being built on the foundation of the apostles and the word of God are being mixed right, with the culture of the world around them. And the culture of the world around them is coming in and invading because we all bring presuppositions, we all bring our past with us into the body of Christ. And so the culture has, the culture has influenced and mixed in with the people. And so what this does is this creates, creates issues in identity and in theology and in morality. And Paul is going to address all of these in his letter. And so the word that we have this morning from Paul in these um, few verses, it speaks this morning that our identity in Christ should bring about a unity within the body of Christ. In Christ, we should be a church of one voice, one Lord, one mission. One voice, one Lord, one mission. 
So let me read from us, from our passage this morning. We will pray and then we'll get into uh, what the Lord has for us this morning. Paul says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we enter into this text today, that it would be your gospel and your word that shines forth here. And that we would, at a deeper level, understand what it means as a church to be one voice, to have one Lord, to have one mission, God. That the church at large, Lord, in this world would become more unified on the core doctrines of the faith and our identity being in your Son, Jesus Christ. And I also pray, Lord, for our local church here, the Oasis, that we would do the same, that we would become closer together as brothers and sisters in Christ as we find our identity, not in the patterns of the world, but in you. I pray for courage. I pray for joy. I pray for peace, not only as we gather together, but as we enter into this world with the mission of bringing the gospel to the lost. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So starting in verse 10, in your bulletins, this will say, a church of one voice. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. That's how he starts. I exhort you, that you all agree. Now literally in the Greek, this is actually that you would be of the same speech. God wants his church to be one voice. Now this doesn't mean that we're robots. The idea here is more of a singular chorus of song. There's melodies, there's harmonies, there's complexity in this beautiful song. But all the pieces fit together as one voice. And so we are, as a church, to speak as one voice, and we cannot be torn, and instead we must be of the same mind and of the same judgment. And so even in verse 10, Paul is going to kind of lay this out. The first thing is, uh, you must get rid of these distinctions among you. And in order to get rid of these distinctions, you must become of the same mind and the same will. Then, 
Once you do that, you will speak as one voice. Paul continues on in the verse that you, not only that you would all agree, and that there would be no divisions among you, but that you would be made complete. Two words here. The first one, these divisions among you, it's schisma, it's this idea of being torn apart. The church is being torn apart by the social factions that are rising within the church because of what the culture or what the church has allowed from the culture to enter in. These are not necessarily doctrinal distinctions. These are social factions that are taking place. And the reason we know this too is because Paul uses this same word, schisma, in 1 Corinthians 11.18 when he's talking about the Lord's Supper. And he's talking about the same sort of factions and divisions based on social divisions. He also does the same thing in uh, chapter 12, 25, when he talks about divisions based on the certain giftings that are within the church. And then we also have a little bit of a clue from church history as well. First Clement, uh, a book written uh, about a century or so after this letter, is a, is Clement writes to the Corinthian church and he says, Take up the epistle of the blessed Paul the Apostle. What wrote he first unto you in the beginning of the gospel? Of a truth he charged you in the spirit concerning himself and Cephas and Apollos, because that even then you had made parties, you had made distinctions. Yet that making of parties brought less sin upon you, for you were partisans of the apostles that were highly reputed and of a man approved in their sight. So what's he saying here? What he's saying is, that Paul wrote to you concerning himself and Cephas and Apollos that even then you had made divisions among yourselves because of these uh, leaders within the church. But he said that it wasn't as bad as it is now when Clement's writing this years later. He said it wasn't as bad as, as it is now because back then it wasn't about doctrinal distinctions as much as it was about kind of who you're following and these were all good men anyway. Now, he's not saying that the divisions aren't a problem. What he's saying is it got worse because then it became a doctrinal issue later on down the line. But what we're seeing in this time is that unofficial alliances were forming in Corinth. Again, not based on doctrine, but on who you follow and social standing and different giftings. And so here we see the cultural syncretism at work again in the church because Corinth was an especially competitive and status-obsessed culture. And so the divisions and competitiveness within the church were carried over from these cultural influences. Now, where might we see this today? Well, at large with the church, we may see it with things like politics and social justice, but more at home for us, right here in the Oasis, it may be these unofficial alliances based on our backgrounds, where we are from, what the color of our skin looks like, what sins we have struggled with in the past, crimes we may have committed. Statuses that society has given us. 
Now, I pray that these dwindle more and more, and the, the more that I get to know everyone here and we, we become one body, I see those, those boundaries breaking. But we have to be aware that in a church diverse like ours, with backgrounds like ours, these are going to be the temptations. These are going to be the cultural influences that try to uh, really invade our congregation and say, you can't be with this person. You can't be friends with this guy. Do you know what he's done? These are the sort of class and social distinctions of the outside world that should not be within the church. So how do we get rid of them? Well, Paul uses another word here. In our Bible, it says, uh, in our translation we have here, but that you be made complete. It's this idea of you were torn apart, but Paul's actually saying it's the opposite, that you are being fitted together in proper condition. You were torn apart, now you're being fitted together in the proper condition. So think of back at that song analogy. We're going to use this a few times. So, so we have many complexities within this song, but it needs to sound as one. So you have different voices, but you also have things like instruments, right? And the band needs to play together. It needs to be fitted together, not torn apart. So how do, how do we get rid of these, uh, the, these schisms? By being, Paul says, of the same mind and judgment, our translation says. The factions are socially based, not doctrinally. Yet Paul is going to call on the rest of this letter, he's going to use the rest of this letter to use doctrine and theology as a cure for these divisions that are taking place. And what I mean by theology is not a bad thing. I don't just mean just head knowledge. I'm talking about good, deep, devotional theology that allows us to come to a deeper understanding of our Lord and His promises and what He has said. And that is essential for unity in the church. So Paul says that you are being fitted together in mind and will. I know I'm hitting you with a lot of terms and words today. I got a couple more. This mind is, it's noose in the Greek. And this idea here is it's a mindset. It's the same outlook, that you would be of the same outlook, that you would be of the same stance. And really this idea is that you as a church would be unified in a distinct way of thinking that you would look different from the thinking of the world and be unified in that kind of thinking. The next word is nome. Now in our translation this morning, it's judgment, but it's also translated as will. And, and the reason we know this is because in this context, it's really, it's a voluntary will towards others. Let me use it in a, another passage for you and. Philemon 14, Paul says, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent. That's the word nome again. I prefer to do nothing without your will in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. It is an appeal to our will, referring to our love for one another. So Paul's saying that you would be knitted together, right? knitted together in completion in the way you think and in the affections that you have. 
I think Calvin described it best when he said, then only will there be a Christian unity among us when there is not merely a good agreement as to doctrine, but we are also in harmony in our affections and our dispositions and are thus in all respects of one mind. And Calvin says that this will only be found where Christ reigns. So to be of the same mind and will is to have a consistent biblical worldview within the church. We talked about that a couple weeks ago as well, right? This biblical worldview that needs to be had within the church, this is what Paul wants. And it's only a consistent biblical worldview that will bring true unity in the body of Christ. Now, I don't think it's too hard to understand that because if we have a biblical worldview that differs from another worldview, what we have there is division. What we have there is distinction. Now, again, this isn't about necessarily uh, doctrine per se, although it will become about that. But at this point, What we have to understand before even going any further in the letter is that if we do not have a consistent biblical worldview, we will never have unity within the body of Christ. Where there is a lack of Christian thinking and where there is a lack of harmony in our love and disposition for one another, there will be a lack of Christ's lordship in our lives and within our churches. In other words, where we lack in our unity is therefore where we lack in the Lordship of Christ. Paul then writes, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. So the first in that verse 10, what we see is the church needs to be of one voice. What we see in these next few verses is that the church needs to be of one Lord. See, these divisions specifically called out by Paul are those who align themselves with specific teachers within the church. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Peter. But the specifics are not mentioned. The specifics are not mentioned. It could be because... You know, Paul was a church planner, so some people were geared towards that and that idea. Paul's of the Gentiles, so the Gentiles maybe were favoring Paul. But then Apollos came and he was a more eloquent speaker. So maybe those who were kind of given more to this idea of, you know, eloquent speaking and good rhetoric were kind of geared towards Apollos. And maybe the Jews in the area were still kind of geared towards Peter, but were really not told. What we are shown, though, is that it is a tragedy of making too much of specific leaders or any styles of leadership. We tend to fall into this with the preachers that we are drawn to, or perhaps the style of worship we like, or the structure of the Sunday service, perhaps. 
where churches and their leaders can gain loyal followers and people who glory in the name of an individual or a church. And the danger of this is that these kinds of followers tend to, uh, or even these, these kind of followers tend to make churches that almost rise and fall on the leaders themselves. For our purposes, though, let's, let us not be at the Oasis, a church that rallies around our leaders with a cult-like following. We are all fallible men and women in this church, and we are all fallible men in leadership, seeking to do the will of God. But the Oasis is not dependent upon Pastor Keith or Ralph or John And Christ does not rely on my ability to teach and certainly not my ability to play guitar and sing in order for his church to thrive and to save and sanctify his elect. Let us be careful that we do not ever make much of man, only much of Christ. And So there are those who said, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and then there are those that say, I'm of Christ. Now this seems like, the, like these would be the good ones. I'm of Christ. But these actually might have been the worst of all. See, they were causing distinctions in the church by implicitly saying, you may be like Paul, you may like Apollos, but I follow Jesus. I'm of the Jesus party. I got the inside scoop and connection with Christ. Really, this is the most prideful group of them all. And the worst part is, they don't see it. Can I be honest with us for a second? Do you know where I see this the most today? Non-denominational churches. Now, I love non-denominational churches because I'm a part of a non-denominational church. So let me talk to you as a brother, as a friend. To me, it seems like the Paul, the Apollos, the Cephas parties are like the Baptists, the Presbyterians, and the Southern Baptists. Southern Baptists get their own little distinction from the Baptists because I'm sure that's what they would want. They have their issues. They have their pride. Then the non-denoms come and say, well, I just follow Jesus not a denomination, or no creed but the Bible, or I'm not a Calvinist, I'm a Christian. If you hear this kind of talk, or if you are given to this kind of talk, it may be an indication that you are of the Christ party, the Christ faction, and not in a good way. Because really... Deep down, a lot of times what you are saying is, I don't really need the help of the people of God that he has put around me or the leaders that God has placed over me because I got Jesus. And so what happens with these sort of people is they have over-assumed their direct line to Jesus and their special insight into the Bible. And so instead of creating unity in Christ... They actually create division by isolating themselves from 
not just the local body, but the body of Orthodox Christians at large. And this actually leads to a special kind of heresy that was very prevalent in the Corinth church, Gnosticism. It's this idea of, I know because I just know, because God told me this. To which I would respond, well, that's not what the Bible says. And that's not what your elders teach. And that's not what the church has historically believed. But the Christ party is actually the most dangerous party because they actually go around saying that they are of Christ. And it is unique to them in a way that these other factions of Paul and Apollos and Cephas just don't understand. And then Paul answers, though, with, is Christ divided? There is only one Lord of the church. It is not the pastors. It is certainly not the denominations. We must be united in the lordship of Christ alone. We are to be united as one body, able to look past preferences and serve our Lord together. Why? Because we have one Savior crucified for us, and we are baptized in one name. I wanted to read from you from Ephesians 4. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. How are we unified in the church our allegiance to one Lord, our faith in one Savior, and our union in one covenant through the sign of baptism. So we are a church of one Lord. And this same Lord is our one Savior. And this one Lord and Savior has given us a new covenant through the sign of baptism. And that's why Paul says you're one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We should not be divided by men. Our identity and our unity doesn't rest on the preachers that we like. That would be like today saying, well, I am of John MacArthur. Well, I am of Doug Wilson. Well, I am of R. Scott Clark. Well, I am of Vody Bauckham. But these are all fallible men. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying their preaching. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying the fruit that has come from their labor for the gospel and for the kingdom of God. But they are just that, mere men. And when we make these mere men lords of the church or of a specific church or even of our lives, 
there will not be unity within the body of Christ. Because I will be more concerned with your upholding of John MacArthur and his view of baptism versus someone else's view of baptism by R.C. Sproul to the point where we can't even get together and do work for the gospel. One Lord, one Savior, one covenant. I got some application for all these at the end. Don't worry, but we got to go through these first. We got one more. A church with one mission. Paul ends with verse 17 saying, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Paul's not saying that baptism isn't important. It's a command from Christ. It's a necessary sign of obedience. In fact, if, if you are neglecting or refusing baptism, this is not a good passage to go to. Because Paul would not contradict what Christ has taught and what the rest of the New Testament teaches. Baptism is important. Baptism is a sign of our obedience. In fact, Paul says that the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper actually proclaim the gospel when they're done right. Romans 6, 3-11, and 1 Corinthians 11, 24-27. In fact, this is one of the reasons that the Lord's Supper is so important, as Paul shows us in 1 Corinthians 11, is that it is, when we partake of it, a proclamation of the gospel, what Christ has done, and what we look forward to and hope for what Christ will do. But what Paul is saying is that he was not commissioned simply to perform baptism, but to preach. And so he admits, I did perform baptisms, but preaching the gospel is what is of primary importance. Baptism is what follows as that sign of obedience to the gospel that was preached. And even this preaching, Paul says, was not with words of wisdom, it wasn't with lofty speech, because that would distract from the gospel. If I make my preaching about my abilities to persuade you, then I have actually distracted from the gospel and I have taken away from the word of God and I will have to answer for that because I am more concerned with my ability to persuade your mind than for the gospel and the word of God to infiltrate your heart. There is a way to preach that will captivate a lot of followers. There is a way to preach that will satisfy the goats, the lost. There is a way to preach that is persuasive but lacks substance. If you don't believe me, there's cults all over the place. If you don't believe me, just Google Jonestown. You can persuade people to do a lot of foolish things if you know how to speak. Run from this kind of preaching. What we need is the kind of preaching that drives our attention to the grace of God, not the eloquence of man. Let it never be said that you were convicted or encouraged by the preaching of myself or of Keith, but by the very word of God. 
And just a little insight for me is I pray that the Lord would squash my pride so that my preaching would always point to Him and away from myself. And I pray for you that the ministry that Christ has called you to would never be about you, but about Christ and His glory. And I see this. So so many Christians do not do the work of a mentor or an evangelist. They do not live out the great commission that Christ has called them to because they care more about how they will look or feel than about glorifying Christ. Now, this sounds odd because normally we think, when we think of the pride of man, we think of the one who's actually willing to stand up and say things to the crowd of people that in his, you know, in his ability with his words and his rhetoric that he's the prideful one which, of course, can be true. It's ironic that many can preach Christ from selfish ambition and pride, and still, I would say, many more never preach Christ because of selfish ambition and pride. And so they never step into the ministry of the gospel because they are actually more focused on their abilities to persuade. They're more focused on their words of wisdom than they are on the weakness that Christ wants to use to bring about his kingdom. One mission. It is the great commission. It is the mission of our lives. So there's a lot of division in the church today. And I would even venture to guess that even if we took a survey of the people within the Oasis about the way we feel and our dispositions, about the way we think, if we were to write out what we think a biblical worldview is, that we would probably come with a lot of distinctions and divisions within even our small little church. And so first and foremost, we need to be aware of that. We need to develop one voice as a church Like I said, as a song, we are a song with different parts, instruments working together in unity for one beautiful song. So, how do we do this? How do we, and I'm talking about us now, as the Oasis, how do we create one voice, one Lord, one mission? How do we work for this beautiful song with all the different gifts and instruments and singing coming together for the Lord? Well, the first thing is, we need to know the song. We need to know the notes. We need to know the lyrics. And really what I mean by this is, we need to know the Word of God. If we are going to be unified as the body of Christ, we have to know the song. We have to know the tune, the lyrics. We can't be playing on different keys. We can't be singing different words. We must know the Word of God. And what I say to this is really simple. Read and pray. It's amazing how many people in the church, they say, I don't know the will of God. Or I can't get over something in my life. Or how do I be rid of this sin? Where does God want me to go? 
What is the ministry that God has for me? And it's amazing that we as Christians today, and I'm speaking for Christians at large, many of us don't do the most basic thing. Read the word of God and pray. Do what hardly anybody does today. Read from cover to cover, over and over again, and pray. Take in the whole counsel of God, not just your favorite passages. Don't just stick on one verse and dive so deeply that you miss the fact that that verse was within a context of a book, and that book is within a context of an entire uh, 66 books. How do we know the song and the tune? We read and pray. Second, we we don't just need to know the song. We also need to follow the conductor or the front man, depending on where this analogy is going in your head. Maybe some of you have like rock bands. Maybe some of us have symphonies. There can only be one conductor. There can only be one front man. There can only be one Lord, Christ. Not the lordship of pastors, not the lordship of denominations, not the lordships, lordship of confessions, and certainly not our own lordship. Today is the day. Today is the day. If you hear his voice, turn to the lordship of Christ. My question is, what other lords are you following in your life? Has following your own lordship been very helpful? And if you could answer yes to that question, I would say, then would you gain the whole world but lose your soul? We as Christians all must daily come back to the lordship of Christ Like Pastor Keith said last week, it is so imperative that we remind ourselves of our identity in Christ. Let me say, it is also imperative that each and every morning you remind yourself of the Lordship of Christ because we are all prone to wander. So we need to know the song. We need to know the tune. We need to be following the true Lord and conductor of this song And then lastly, you need to play your part. There will never be unity if people refuse to play their part in the song. There can never be one voice. There can never be unity in the song if people are just sitting there and not actually singing or not actually playing. And let me say this to my Oasis brothers and sisters that I I, I love dearly, but many of you have been here long enough that you know it is time for you to get out there and start preaching the gospel. It is time for you to get out there and start playing your part. It is time for you to begin discipling people. It is time for you to get involved in ministry. I know the fear. I know it can be intimidating. The first time, every time actually, but especially the first time, using this song analogy, that I had to play guitar in front of people or sing in front of people. It's terrifying. But you have to do it. 
It's been your commission from your Lord. And if he is truly your Lord, then you have to follow the conductor. You have to play your part. No more sitting on the sidelines. No more saying, I don't yet have enough wisdom, or I don't yet have enough knowledge, or I don't yet have enough Bible college training. No more saying that I can just sit here quietly and let the other musicians play and nobody will notice. The conductor knows. And I know that some of you just, you you refuse to take those steps to play your parts and you are missing so much that the Lord has for you. And I think for a lot of us, we need to take inventory of why that is. Why are we refusing to jump in this game here? Why are we refusing to play our part? Why are we refusing to follow our Lord into this commission that he's called us to? Without these, we will never have true church unity. Without these, without investing in these, we will never have one voice or one Lord or one mission. So let us begin to do these things. Let's pray. And then we will take communion together. Lord, I pray for the unity of the body of Christ. I pray, Lord, for myself that I would not be so needing affirmation for words of wisdom that I would render the gospel void. And I pray, Lord, for all of us that we would become a church of one voice. Lord, that you would be our Christ and Lord of our lives in every area. That we would submit everything to you, Lord, even when it's scary, even when we don't fully understand it, even and especially when it goes against what the world says we should be doing. I pray, Lord, for the Oasis especially that we would be a church dedicated to unity and love for one another, that we would be dedicated to the great commission that you have given us, the body of Christ. I pray this in your Son's name. Amen.